This is The Global Gambit. In The Global Gambit podcast, we focus on the big picture of geopolitics, foreign policy and current affairs. Each episode, your host, Piotr Kurzin, brings you interviews and panels with top-tier academics, journalists and policymakers. Seeking to make sense of the news, go beyond what's presented to us and question and critically analyse these matters. This is The Global Gambit. Welcome back to another episode of the Global Gambit podcast. I'm your host, Piotr, and I'm very excited to be uh, hosting a particularly um, great guest that I'm well, particularly excited to uh, to be to be discussing the uh, the latest developments and perspectives in a broader sense uh, about the Ukrainian situation. In the past couple of days, we've seen the British sign a security pact with the Swedes and the Finns, and as of May twelfth of twenty twenty two, the Finnish Prime Minister and President came out together in. Uh, a broad statement stating that NATO membership was now a, a vital need, essentially. They're basically pushing for the need and it's now up to Parliament to decide, but that seems more or less a formality, which will therefore mean that the Swedes also join. So some big developments on the ground. Joining me tonight is a great friend, good um, good guy all round and co-host for this evening, Tao Tan. He's partner at a, an investment firm and a former strategic consultant at McKinsey and investment banker Merrill Lynch and Lehman Brothers. He was also uh, an education committee member, an occasional guest lecturer at the University of Columbia, and a term member of the Council on Foreign Relations. I'm going to hand over to you, Tao, to introduce our main guest for tonight. All yours. Thank you very much, Piotr. I'm delighted to introduce or reintroduce to this room my dear friend, Gideon Rose. Gideon is the Mary and David Boyes Distinguished Fellow in U.S. Foreign Policy at the Council on Foreign Relations. Uh, for 20 years, from 2001 to 2021, Gideon was the first the executive editor and then the editor, as well as the Peter G. Peterson Chair of Foreign Affairs, which is America's premier foreign policy publication. Gideon wrote a book in 2010 titled How Wars End. And more recently, and much more presciently, wrote two articles titled The Irony of Ukraine and also Why the War in Ukraine Won't Go Nuclear, both of which we'll be discussing tonight. Gideon started his career on the National Security Council and I believe also had an appointment at the State Department. And he's also had an academic career with appointments at Princeton University and currently at Columbia University, where a group of very fortunate seniors in the political science department get to take a senior seminar. Uh, Gideon earned his BA at Yale and his PhD at Harvard, and we're delighted to have him. Uh, Thank you, Tao. Welcome to be here. God, that guy sounds really smart. I wish I knew him. (laughs) <laughs> of course, Gideon. So, so Gideon, look, um, three days ago was May 9th, Victory Day in Russia. Pundits across the board, including some at the esteemed Council on Foreign Relations, predicted that Vladimir Putin would either A, announce a limited victory in Donbass, or B, announce an escalation or general mobilization. And yet what we got was a bit of a nothing burger. So what, in short, what happened? What went through his head? Why were so many of our pundits and our friends uh, wrong about this topic? Well, if there's one thing that this war should have taught people, it's that everybody gets things wrong. And it's actually kind of interesting. I would say as you listen to coverage, as, as everybody follows what's happening and follows the commentary on it, they should keep a track record, not just of which commentators got things right or wrong and adjust their listening preferences accordingly, but more importantly, because everybody gets some things wrong, look at how people deal with their previous mistakes and the the ways that they sort of explain away why they got things wrong. With regard to what Putin did on May 9th, he had gone into the war with hopes of a quick, easy win. 
and found himself trapped in a quagmire that was hurting. And the three options he basically had to go do something with on May 9th, since there was a pre-existing standard date in Russian political mythology, it's a very big event, the celebration of the victory over Germany, around which the current regime has built much of its nationalist propaganda. We are the inheritors of these great Russian military victors in the past. Our opponents are the descendants of the Nazis uh, that we beat. And so this is always a big day in Russia, Russian political discourse. And it seemed like something was going to happen. We know that what he originally wanted to happen probably was use this as a celebration of an actual victory. But denied the actual victory, he had three options. One was fully accept the defeat, declare a, a minor victory and walk away in effect, using it as an opportunity to wrap up a misbegotten enterprise and move on to the next thing. But he hasn't done that yet. It's clear that he's not psychologically there yet, although he may come to it eventually. Uh, But he wasn't ready to do that. But other people worried that he would respond by widening the conflict further, respond to the defeat in the earlier phases by trying to escalate either with a national mobilization, calling up lots of reserves uh, and making it a full-scale war, not just a special military operation, or even uh, going nuclear or threatening nuclear stuff uh, as a way to force the allies to the Ukraine and its NATO allies to recognize Russian interests and stop, in effect, beating up the Russians or resisting. Instead, But I didn't think that was going to happen because I didn't think the first was going to happen because I didn't think he was psychologically there yet, accepting defeat, having gone through the five stages of grief. He's not really ready yet. But I also wasn't particularly worried about the mobilization concept or the nuclear concept, the mobilization concept, because he's already made a bad bet and realized that bet is bad. Doubling down would not give him a better chance of victory and only increase his costs. So I didn't think that a national mobilization made sense. And a nuclear uh, escalation has never made sense, as, as I read in my, wrote in my piece, because there's no battlefield utility to deploying nuclear weapons. And all it would get him was even more trouble and headaches uh, because there would be even greater opprobrium and response and retaliation. And so denied a path forward and upwards through escalation and not willing to accept a backwards path of, of climb down and retreat. He just basically passed and didn't say much. And the date did not turn out to be a significant one in the course of the war. What he has chosen to do is keep, at least for now, the Russians are continuing to go on the same path they've been on trying to win on the battlefield in the East. The interesting question now that May 9th has passed is what happens in the coming two, three weeks, essentially over the next month, as Russia's ability to maintain its pace of operations in the East slows because they've been beaten up badly, while the Ukrainians get influxes of new weapons from the West and possibly even start to take the upper hand. That's what we don't know. In effect, the decision people were waiting for to be see reflected on May 9th has been deferred rather than eliminated. And we don't know yet how he's how Putin is ultimately going to respond to having his forward progress frustrated and maybe even being pushed back and set back on Russian heels.
So, so Gideon, we're going to follow up with that on just a second, but there's one interesting thing that I want to point out. So following on to why our pundits were wrong, uh, Gideon, it seems like you are one of the few that were right from the beginning. You published this fascinating article on foreign affairs a few weeks ago titled, Why the War in Ukraine Won't Go Nuclear. And from reading the article, your argument was that despite having not happened since the fall of the Soviet Union, the Western world and Russia are engaged in sort of a proxy conflict that was fairly common during the Cold War and was fought according to familiar rules that both sides uh, respected. So for the benefit of our audience, can you give us an overview of what led you to that conclusion? And if you're willing, why so many people miss this? Sure. So if you study military history, you see patterns that reappear in lots of contexts because war has its own logic. It has its own understanding of how things happen. And although initial commentary on any individual war always privileges the immediate things we see right in front of us, the unique characteristics, the detailed complex history between Russia and Ukraine, let's say, or the psychological stability and characteristics of Putin, or the heroic resistance of Zelensky. Those things which always make a war seem incredibly unpredictable. And in fact, there have been major unpredictable aspects, such as how badly the Russians have underperformed militarily compared to what expectations were, and how well the Ukrainians have overperformed compared to expectations. Separate question. The What has happened as the war has gone on is it's sort of fallen into fairly predictable or regular patterns in the macro sense that bear the characteristics of limited war in the nuclear age. Basically, in the old days of war, pre-1945, pre-World War II, if you got into a really serious war, you ended up trying to win it with whatever you had. Uh, And that's how you ended up getting total wars. By the end of World War II, this process had come to its absolute logical conclusion. You could do one decision and blow up an entire city with one bomb. You ended a total war with an act of total violence. And this seemed to, you couldn't continue the trend any further. And if you did, once both sides got nuclear weapons, total war would mean the destruction of the world. So it seemed like you couldn't continue the old patterns, but no one knew what would happen when uh, war did occur. In Korea, we started to get the answers. Because in Korea, and by the way, the North Koreans invaded South Korea in 1950 with the acceptance of the Russians, because just like today, the Russians didn't think the Americans would respond and defend. We had just essentially ruled Korea off limits. Uh, We were going to make our stand on the islands offshore. And so they thought, oh, we could get a pickup for our side in the east cheap, just like Putin seems to have thought he could get a pickup at his side in his empire on the cheap because the West and the United States wouldn't respond and he'd be able to beat the Ukrainians. Well, pretty quickly, the Truman administration jumped in on the side of the South Koreans, and you ended up having a sort of ongoing major proxy war, and it was taking place in the nuclear age. And what happened during the course of the Korean War, not through negotiations, not through humanitarian impulses, not through morality or uh, beneficence, but simply through cold, hard logic of leaders in wartime trying to make decisions about how to prosecute the war and serve their national interests, both nuclear powers recognized that nuclear weapons were not particularly useful for normal military operations. 
War is an act of force to get the enemy to do your will to achieve some political aim, as Clausewitz says, and nuclear weapons were just too destructive to actually be very usable on the battlefield. They would hurt your own forces as well as the enemy forces. They would destroy the very thing you were trying to get control of. They would bring on possible retaliation. And so it turned out during the course of Korea that both nuclear powers recognized essentially, although they never quite admitted it exactly this way, that nuclear weapons were really useful for deterring other people attacking you, but not very useful for what we would call compellence, getting somebody else to do something, because it was a threat that you were never going to carry out, and it was too vicious to actually implement. So during the Korean War, the rules of the road for the nuclear era that emerged were nuclear powers don't use their nuclear weapons. They limit the conflict that they're fighting to the geographical area of the conflict rather than the home state of the nuclear power on either side. And they don't threaten the regime of the nuclear power because those are conditions in which you might actually, look, if you're Samson and you're going to die, you might as well bring the whole world down around with you. But if you're not going to die, it's a silly, crazy, suicidal act, and leaders of states tend not to be suicidal. Uh, And so by avoiding threatening the regime of a nuclear power, by avoiding invading a nuclear power's territory, you essentially allowed nuclear weapons to stabilize the highest level of the war while the conventional fighting proceeded as viciously as possible in all the ways that we know, and it went on. That's what happened in Korea. It happened in Vietnam. It happened in Afghanistan for them. It happened in Afghanistan for us. It happened in Iraq. And it's happening now in Ukraine in the sense that the basic pattern of limited war in the nuclear age is that conventional fighting gets to proceed in whatever ways possible with seemingly no restraints. But the if you're dealing with a nuclear power, the belligerents stay very carefully Uh, below certain fire breaks to make it clear that the nuclear weapons that that are possibly available for use stay unused because they're not necessary or useful or helpful. And so that's what's happened in Ukraine, which is we're seeing, even though Russia and NATO have even better weaponry, even more destructive weaponry that they could throw into the fight, they're not doing that because it might risk a global nuclear war, which neither side wants. And instead, what you're seeing is each side, in effect, trying to win with everything up to but short of the nuclear level. So just on this point, um, Gideon, because for me, one of the big elements of of this war in recent weeks was the, I think it was March 25th, when we saw the the Russians launch uh, a few hypersonic missiles in the western, southwestern area of, of Ukraine, specifically, I think it was towards Lviv and Odessa. Um, and some people have begun wondering about, you know, the fear of of hypersonic missiles and their capabilities for, for nuclear weaponry. Um, and this brings me to um, also the idea of, of um, uh, one of the other things you've touched upon, you know, the rules of proxy conflicts. You talked about that that was in addition to not going nuclear and either side attacks the other, so to speak, directly, but letting everything flow through their respective proxies. It's something we've seen in Syria, we've seen in many different theatres of war uh, in recent years. Um, yet there has been leaked indications from what I've seen and, and what others I think have read in recent days about how US intelligence supported the targeting of the Moskva and perhaps even that of taking out the Russian generals. 
So I'm curious, do you see us in any danger of moving closer to the line, so to speak? Or so in a, your view, are we still playing by those sort of rules? If that makes sense. So that's a great question because the the as I said, these lines are not drawn in print on a map. They're not credibly written out in a book. They're not like the uh, negotiated treaties you're supposed to follow. They are informal understandings that are imposed by the logic of the situation rather than uh, agreed to or internalized by the uh, belligerents. So the way to think about these rules is not so much as, oh, we have to follow the rule, but gee, we don't want X to occur. And so because we don't want X to occur, we're going to make sure not to do Y because doing Y might trigger X. And so what you've seen during the conflict is both sides try to gain military advantage in whatever way they can while sort of skirting close to the line. Uh, It's like pitching pennies. You want to get as close to the line as possible so that you can use the maximum force possible without crossing it because that could bring on terrible retaliation. And so what you've seen from both sides is a kind of inching closer to a red line that we thought the allies, you know, know, the West NATO was very careful early on not to want to provoke Russia. And so they held off all sorts of weaponry early on that uh, it seemed might potentially uh, drive the Russians to uh, do something more radical. As the war progressed, however, and as the Ukrainians were able to hold their own and even push the Russians back, the allies started to uh, lose their fear of Russian uh, uh, escalation unless some really major lines were crossed, like actual interference uh, or the troops fighting each other. So, for example, we're not going to see, you know, the no-fly zone has held. We're not going to be a no-fly zone because that would involve potential direct combat between NATO forces and Russian pilots, uh, which could provoke a direct conflict. There's not going to be direct U.S. troops on the ground. What you've seen, however, is the Russians trying to scare NATO, in effect, by threatening both nuclear use and by doing things that go close to the borders as if almost to do like warning shots across the bow. But they haven't gone further than that. And what the West has done and the Ukrainians have done is to help Ukraine but in ways that are somewhat plausibly deniable and that's somewhat below the radar screen, indirectly rather than directly. And what you're seeing and what you just talked about was very interesting because when those stories emerged of how the U.S. help in targeting, let's say, had been really successful and useful to the Ukrainians in terms of sinking the Moskva, in terms of other operations, particularly attacking generals, uh, there was that everybody was like, "Ooh, that actually is getting the kind of thing that might piss the Russians off enough to provoke some kind of direct reaction. And so there was a lot of talk. Oh, this was a dumb idea to talk about. And supposedly Biden furious with the leaks and gave orders to shut them down because you don't want to provoke the bear. But it seems like, again, that these rules are kind of interesting. You might think people die from sanctions, but they die slowly and behind the scenes. And so you don't actually get triggered that way. The British were strangling Germany in World War One and causing terrible deaths, but it wasn't coded as an act of belligerency the way German attempts to block 
to, to break the blockade through things like unrestricted submarine warfare uh, were coded because one was a direct use of force and the other was a sort of amorphous, indirect constriction of economic activity. Human psychology is interesting. As long as we avoid direct killings of one side's personnel by the other or direct attacks on Russian territory in a major way. By the way, the thing that's even more worrisome to me than the intelligence sharing was the occasional Ukrainian attacks, we think, across the border into Russia, blowing up some various things there. That's a kind of, I would personally prefer it if the Ukrainians did not do any operations militarily on the inside Russia, because that's getting too close for comfort. And you don't want the Russians to respond by going even further. Yeah, I, I very much agree with that last point, particularly, um, you know, it's one thing to have a disastrous and um, terrible conflict war within a specific nation state, but for that to then well become a cross-border conflict, um, particularly with a nuclear state and one as unpredictable at times as, as Russia, uh, can severely shift the, uh, the, the situation. Uh, and this sort of brings me to... Uh, there's two parts to this question that I kind of want to hear your take on very much, um, which is, well, it seems like as the war has gone on, the US and the Ukrainians' objectives have shifted. At the beginning, the US stated its policy was to defend Ukraine, to help the resistance, uh, purely from a defensive perspective and narrative. But now, in the past, well, recent two weeks, we've had uh, Nancy Pelosi, we've had Secretary Austin, we've had um, Secretary of State um, Blinken. Um, and we've also had um, uh, Jane Biden, is it, um, or his wife in the country. And these are significant developments. So, and, and, and when Secretary Austin visit, he said it was a, a quote, to weaken Russia. Likewise, in Ukraine, Zelensky seems to have indicated openness to a neutral status, what, within the first month of the war? Um, and that has now shifted towards much more of indicative of Ukrainian goals to actually to retake the entirety of Ukraine, including Crimea. Biden even said he was, quote, worried that Putin uh, doesn't have a way out right now. And I'm trying to figure out what we do about that. So my first part of the question is, do you share that concern? But second, do we think potentially that this war might not come to not necessarily a complete end, but the ones that push the the, the development is, is is the Americans, specifically the Americans, because Biden is facing a lot of domestic pressure, hyper inflationary pressure equally. Um, you know, uh, what is it? The Europeans at seven and a half percent, Britain at eight percent, America eight and a half percent. You've got the midterms coming up. What do we think is that's going to mean for the the Biden administration if they continue to supply at such rate to the um, to the Ukrainian cause? And so, do you think the second part of my question? Do you think that it could be the Americans or the Western alliance that are like, okay, Ukrainians, you've got to come to the table and negotiate this because we cannot uh, continue to sustain the the amount of global instability that this could this could uh, in, endure from a food and energy and so on and such. So those two sub questions, if uh, if you want me to repeat them, but very curious. So they're great, great questions dealing with them in reverse order. The second is actually what I would characterize as the French position right now. Uh, and so what you're really uh, sort of asking is, will the Americans end up taking the view of the French and maybe some of the more Russophilic uh, Germans and essentially try to shut these shut this down quickly. Maybe, but doubtful is what I would say to that because, and this gets back to the answer to the first question, in war as in life more generally, nothing succeeds like success. And 
what has been happening over the last couple of months is to everybody's surprise the ukrainians have turned out to be very very good at war and the russians have turned out to be very very bad and so the actual combat has seen the ukrainians push the russians back and win the battle of kiev and so far hold their own in a stalemate in the battle of the donbas and the russians seem to be according to the best estimates coming to the end of their usable forces that they assembled for the invasion originally and then reassembled to try to attack the east and at a certain point in the next few weeks it's going to become really really hard for the russians to maintain their forward momentum and so, the ukrainians are now actually getting more weaponry and more training and more help and although they're suffering terrible damage themselves in an ongoing war of attrition they can sense that the tide is beginning to turn or maybe about to turn their way and this becomes interesting because it becomes a time of danger but also opportunity like the old you know cliche about the chinese character for crisis being a composed of danger and opportunity if you think about the war in bosnia when the serbs were you know rampaging early on it was hard to see how it would stop and after a couple of years two things happened first the battle lines clarified and the uh, thanks to horrible terrible ethnic cleansing and the horrors of war the ethnic uh, patchwork quilt became much simpler and clearer second the the croats and the bosnians managed to get more help and more aid and started to push back and you got to a point at which the balance of the war actually became somewhat even with it looking like the croatians were about to be able to take the upper hand and that meant that there was a window of opportunity in which each side might conceivably consider a settlement because they were uncertain about the future and they were kind of okay with where they were right then and that was when holbrook stepped in and we had the dayton accords and you actually managed to convert a temporary balance into a durable settlement uh that was you know however problematic it was in other ways stopped the war you could be approaching a moment like that in the ukraine war as the ukrainians hold off the russians and get to the point where they could threaten pushback and even make some pushback because then the russians would have an incentive to stop because they would be otherwise losing more territory and more ground and the ukrainians would have an incentive to stop because they would want to have the destruction of their country stopped and the west would have an incentive to help keep a settlement negotiate and keep a settlement because everyone wants the war to be over and everything else. on the other hand this requires a rational consideration of interests and in effect reasonable people on all sides going we have found ourselves in a terrible situation how do we walk out of this in the least bad way possible so Gideon, the problem is that there are emotions energies on all sides that build up stakes it's not just as you say that there's 
problems with the war continuing further in terms of further crises. There also are upsides. If you're Ukrainian and you suddenly get the upper hand and you now have all this new weaponry and you're pushing the Russians back, it's natural for you to want to escalate your goals to try to push the Russians all the way out even below the status quo ante, or rather to take the status quo ante as your border, not just the most recent positions as of February 24th. That's a very, that's where the, look, at this point, we can be pretty clear, I think, that the war is going to end somewhere between the current battle lines and the original borders uh, so, of the country. But we so don't know Gideon, exactly yeah. where. So Gideon, you're, you're touching on, I think, everyone's, the topic on everyone's mind right now, which is, uh, you know, uh, we've heard you loud and clear that, that you know, in, especially in, in your article when you said these proxy wars either conclude with a negotiated settlement, which doesn't seem that likely right now, or subside into uh, what you call a frozen conflict along the army's stalemated line of conflict. So in your view, have we reached that moment of stalemate or is it still a couple weeks away? And We're I still a couple of weeks this. away. We're still, We're still a couple weeks of weeks away. away. Okay. Okay. And, 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 and it, the reason I yeah, the reason I emphasize this is because at the moment Russia still holds more Ukrainian territory than it did the morning of February twenty fourth, including the entirety of the Donbass and the land bridge. And I guess what I'm hearing you say is the next few weeks will be interesting to watch to see if they can shift that before we reach that moment of stalemate. Well, the interesting thing is that, you know, there's a difference between a military stalemate and the a stable military stalemate, a temporary balance and where the actual lines are. You know, there's, there are three different things going on here. There's the fighting capacity of both forces, uh, how exhausted they are and how much they might want to just stop. There's also the question of their relative balance, who has the upper hand militarily, who can in effect uh, push the or pull the tug of war in in their direction, and then finally, there's where the where you actually are in the tug of war. The turning point militarily will come before you're at the place where Ukraine has uh, gone back to the status quo ante. In other words, for the Ukrainians to get from here to the status quo ante, they will have to push the Russians back. In effect you know, win the tug of war. And if they can do that, then they can continue to push the Russians back. And so what we're kind of seeing or going to be seeing now is, will it actually be possible for the Ukrainians to get with their new weaponry and the Russians with their exhaustion? Uh, will the balance of tide, will the tide of war shift? And second, if it does start to shift, will that open up opportunities for diplomatic action. One of the most interesting potential historical examples here that hasn't been talked about, I think, much is the 1973 Yom Kippur War, because that's a war when uh, the Arab countries, uh, including Egypt and Syria, attacked Israel in a surprise attack, gained a lot of ground early on. And then the Israelis managed, with American help and resupply, to fight off the attacks and start to push the invading forces back. And they pushed the Egyptian forces back all the way across the Sinai and actually trapped the Egyptian Third Army uh, against the Nile and were about to really maul it and crush it. And at that point, the Russians, 
who were at that point, the Egyptians were a proxy of the Russians. The Russians were telling the Americans, do not let the Israelis do that. And the Americans didn't want the Israelis to do that because Kissinger recognized that this was a potential source of leverage. And so what Kissinger and Nixon did at this point was, in effect, step in to force the Israelis not to annihilate the Egyptian army, negotiate a withdrawal for that army, and segue from terrible combat to the beginning of a fascinating, intricate peace settlement, which ultimately led to major developments in the settlement of the Arab-Israeli conflict, at least on the southern front. And so you can actually have a war termination flip quickly into successful diplomacy that resolves the problems, or at least makes headway on them. But it's very difficult, and I don't see any Holbrooks running around right now, and I don't see the emotional status there. So we don't really know what's going to happen, but we're not quite there yet. But I would say the next month is going to be really, really interesting, because the first question was, could the Ukrainians hold off the Russians? And they did. The Russians then were like, Haha, okay, fine, you did it then, but we're going to go back to, in effect, a simple military operation in the east. The, and then the question was, could the Ukrainians hold them off there too? And the answer has been yes. And now the interesting question is, okay, so then what? Russia doesn't have another set of forces and another plan. And so if the Ukrainians can actually continue to go forward for another couple of weeks, it starts to get really, really interesting and may provide the kind of logjam break that leads to some kind of settlement. On the other hand, it might also just be a sort of reversion to where you were before in the sense of a sort of low-grade conflict simmering in the east. The Russians might declare you know, some of the uh, the Donbass or Kherson as part of Russia and try to, uh, and that would create a condition in which essentially the Ukrainians might say, do we want to give anything to the Russians to end the war uh, while taking the rest of the rump Ukraine and moving on with our lives? And that's going to be very, very difficult. And that's why the battles of uh, in places like uh, Mariupol and, 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 and Kherson and other places, if the Russians can achieve a contiguous front militarily in the east, it would be something they might want to just sort of take hold and, and, and stop the war on. But they're not there yet. And so the, that's why the detailed progress of the fighting on the ground is so important. And it'll be very interesting to see whether the new weapons that have been sent and are now finally this week, literally only this week, making their way into battle on the Ukrainian side, long term uh, howitzers, things like that, will actually make a difference. Uh, Gideon, thank you for that. And, you know, I'm glad you mentioned the Yom Kippur War, because I think we should need to give an obligatory shout out to the book Master of the Game, which was written and published very recently by, I believe, your former colleague, um, uh, Martin Indyk, uh, who describes in detail, you know, to your point, the intricate dance that went into resolving the end of the Yom Kippur War. Yeah, uh, not just my uh, friend, but uh, former boss, actually. I, when I was on the NSC, uh, I was a junior peon getting water for the real people managing the peace process and things like that, and uh, people like Martin. Um, there's another thing about 73 that's interesting in the Arab-Israeli wars, which is in 67 and 73, the defeats that Israel managed to inflict on the Arab armies were the best advertisement you could ever have for American weaponry versus Russian weaponry. And so a lot of other people were watching those wars and concluded, gee, we want to be 
on the side of the the ones who are victorious and we want to you know side with the strong horse as it were and in that same way the heroic ukrainian resistance um and the pathet- frankly the pathetic russian uh, military performance, not just their brutality, but their incompetence or their inability to achieve their goals despite massive amounts of uh, effort, will be something that will redound to the credit of the United States globally. Uh, not that anybody was basically thinking Russia was going to be a giant big new imperial power these days, but the 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 Amer- here's where the American proxy is doing so well that it's like an advertisement. Gee, we want to be with these guys using their arms with their advice and their training, because that clearly is a successful mode of military operations. Gideon, thank you for that. And and you, you actually touched on what I want to touch on next, which is, look, zooming out, I know better than to ask you to make predictions. But in your article, you talked about, I think your words were, the shock of an, an initial conflict galvanizes a balancing coalition in response. And and right now, that balancing coalition, which came together very quickly, and I think surprised us all at how quickly it came together and how strong it is, is still very much under the Cold War framework of NATO, likely soon to be joined by Finland and Sweden. But you also talk about how post-war and Cold War multilateral institutions are facing increasing challenges to their legitimacy. So to, to go on your point of, of the Yom Kippur War being an advertisement for American weaponry and the war in Ukraine being an advertisement for the Western rules-based order, is, is this, uh, what do you make of this revitalization of NATO? Is it, is it here to stay or is this something that's unique uh, but passing? There's two models of, of life that people tend to assume. One is that sort of trends will continue and the other is that there'll be sort of pushback and resistance. And what you're seeing here is that there isn't just bandwagoning behavior to success. There's resistance and balancing. And the Russians, if they had managed to achieve, even if they had managed to achieve a quick, easy victory, it would have scared the bejesus out of the rest of Europe and strengthened NATO as a response. And you would have had a newly militarized situation, but just further back, not including Ukraine. What has happened so far is by attacking brutally, the Russians have scared everybody in Europe again because they had people in Europe had thought this couldn't happen again. And to have the Russians do, you know, yet again, the same kind of thing that the old old time powers used to do, conquering, invading, destroying a country, killing lots of people, violating everything. That's scared Europe so much that it's gone back into, gee, we're happy to ally with the Americans in a protective alliance to actually save our butts. And and the Russians having managed to scare everybody, but then not intimidate them uh, because they proved uh, incompetent at this imperial mission is kind of like a best case scenario for NATO, because you make everybody realize why it still has to exist but you also convince them that if they do join, they will be fine and they're on joining the strong side rather than the weak side. So the most humiliating, okay, if one of the most surprising things of all this was Germany's 180 degree you know, turnover from appeasement to opposition uh, has been amazing. Uh, nobody expected that. And the Russians must be just absolutely apoplectic about that because a huge amount of Russian energy and effort and resources has gone into trying to basically hug Germany so closely that 
you know, you're, they're going to be on your side or neutral rather than go along with this kind of conflict. Uh, but if, as big as that is and as important as that is, the, humil- the humiliation of Finland and Sweden joining NATO, we, some of the old guard like me remember the term Finlandization. And the idea of Finlandization was when you had a country like Finland that was neutral, independent, but neutral, on the Russian border, they were going to be effectively dominated by the Soviet Union or by these days Russia. And so Finlandization was something we talked about during the Cold War as an an epithet, a term of abuse for a country that was so uh, under the thumb of the big guy next to it that they would do whatever the big guy wanted even though they weren't formally controlled. When people worry about China's influence in Australia, they were growing. They worry about what we used to call Finlandization, which is that, oh, the Australians will have to be so sort of nervous about the Chinese that they will, you know, in effect, remove themselves from battle. The idea that an attempt to restore Russian imperial glory and Soviet glory has not just failed to achieve its goal in getting Ukraine but is actually going to drive countries into the Western camp and the official NATO alliance in a way that didn't even happen during the Cold War must be just, again, shocking and deeply humiliating to the Russians. But at this point, it doesn't seem like there's anything they can do about it. So, Gideon, that is a perfect. It's almost like we knew that we were going to be having this discussion. Um, uh, you lead me perfectly into another question I have for you, which is something I alluded to at the beginning. Um, this signing of the British deal with the Swedes and the Finns in this sort of security pact, it mirrors what they did with the, the Polish and the Ukrainians um, near the very beginning of the war. So, I was curious for your take, Gideon, a little bit more, not just about NATO and the sort of multilateral security alliance, but also this growing relevancy of mini-lateralism, micro-lateralism, and and also just sort of, why is the UK doing all this? So much the UK, it wants to remain relevant. The UK and the Russians have a particularly bitter relationship. So I'm just curious for your perspective on on this, you know, these smaller niche uh, deals that are being developed and what that means for European security, because there's so much going on in Europe in terms partnerships, packs, and so on. It's actually, uh, for Americans to talk about European security, it, it's dangerous because it, it's very easy for us to be paternalistic and, and patronizing. From the American perspective, broadly speaking, Europe was a scene of constant military struggle and wars that we had to keep being dragged into to settle. Uh, we came in late in World War One and settled it. We came in early in World War II to settle it, and we stayed there to prevent World War III. And so, uh, and we then sort of reconstructed the Europeans into sort of nice Pacific states that we allied with and armed so that they could help defend themselves and defray the, the, the burdens or costs of stability, and that we've been doing that ever since. And, and that's why you get things like Trump's hectoring and haranguing of the Europeans to uh, fulfill their NATO defense commitments, because the feeling is that, you know, as Bob Kagan put it uh, a while ago, when it comes to things like war, 
Americans are from Mars and Europeans are from Venus, pacified, debellicized community that that is exactly what we wanted in terms of no longer trouble on the world stage, but needs our help to to actually defend themselves. That's the uh, uh, unpleasant, unspoken or somewhat patronizing view that the American strategic establishment has towards European security behind the sort of, oh, we're all in this together as a team of NATO doing it. Uh, but you, so you don't say that because you don't you want actually the Europeans to be very uh, engaged in their own defense. The Brits, of course, are a special case because they have such imperial uh, legacies and mentalities uh, and are so used to being the alpha military power themselves that they leap into thinking of themselves that way and, and you know, in effect, acting as the, the dominant player, or not a dominant player, but, but acting as a major, you know, there, there are atavistic tendencies in British strategic establishments that they used to play the role of the Americans and are happy to sort of come back into that, to thinking of that. Um, and I think that's why they sort of over, uh, you know, jump in and, and seize that role, whereas the French have, you know, defined their modern uh, strategic posture somewhat in opposition from de Gaulle on being somewhat skeptic and independent. It's almost as if the role of junior partner to the Americans was taken by the British uh, and the French, therefore, as a matter of functional differentiation, adopted uh, the opposite role of the sort of the pain in the ass client who didn't sort of do what you wanted um, and was very uh, aggressively independent. Then, of course, you have the developments of Eastern Europe as a power and the old uh, sort of, you know, battles between new Europe and old Europe, as it were, during the uh, the Bush years. But what you see here, basically, I think, again, is Russia having done what nobody else could have done and what the Atlantic Alliance couldn't have done for itself, which is galvanize everybody on the other side, with the possible exception of Hungary and a few Germans, into recognizing that however bad the Americans were, however problematic Western capitalism is, however uh, no one likes uh, a big loudmouth, uh, you know, hypocritical uh, hegemon proclaiming its devotion to a liberal world order, which isn't quite liberal, isn't quite, you know, global and isn't quite as ordered. It's, it's still a hell of a lot better than old fashioned 19th century great powers who just simply run roughshod over anybody next to them that they want to and take their territory, kill their people and act with no compunction uh, or restraint whatsoever. And so the Russians have managed, as I said, to scare everybody in Europe in a way they thought that they would intimidate the Europeans and the West. And in fact, what they've done is piss everybody off, scared them and make them realize that there's a reason for NATO in the first place, and that's why we want to keep it going. So all these discussions about what was NATO's mission going to be? Should it do out-of-area operations? Should it be a global humanitarian alliance? No, everybody, like, there were a lot of big fights over that because no one really knew exactly what NATO should do other than deter or protect uh, Europe from Russian attack. And now we realize, hey, that old original mission of NATO is still vibrant, <laughs> it's, it's still, still realistic, and it's still worth doing. And, you know, that's enough. So we don't have to worry about NATO's new job or new missions or new identity because it turns out its old one is pretty important pertinent. and still relevant. Yeah, no, I, I, I 100% agree. I, I think in the time that we've been, you know, um, covering Ukraine, 
the 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 topic in question of NATO and its relevancy or legitimacy and so on has been one of the one of the biggest sticking points for for not just myself but many uh, many a geopolitical sort of analyst and, and someone interested in it and European security. Um, I think you know NATO was even considered to be potentially what they tried. To in counterterrorism operations, insurgency elsewhere. Um, I'm, I mean, Qatar joined it as a what non-official member uh, back in all the way before even the um, the Ukraine war fully took off. So you've got sort of NATO expanding well beyond the transatlantic theater. But you you touched upon capitalism. You touched upon U.S. hegemony, uh, and this is the final question I want to ask for you. We were really zooming out here. Now. I want to frame my question as, uh, as, as clearly for the audience uh, as well as our listeners, in the sense that for much of the 21st century, we had at least the first 10 years, we had a unipolar world. And that had come off the bat of the collapse of the Soviet Union and, and much of what has led to arguably some of current today uh, with the bipolar world. Now, for me, personally, 2008 was a big deal in the sense that we had the collapse of um, the US hegemonic power, the global financial system was really rocky, and the faith and trust in the globalization order was really fracturing. And since then, we've had multipolarity and uh, a growing sense of China, more belligerent, more um, particularly under President Xi. Russia was uh, pretty was doing pretty well after the oil boom of the 2000s and Europe was in a bit of a mess with the euro crisis and populism rises um, and, and we see this you know shifting in the international system and now what I think we're beginning to enter is a renewed bipolar area or time of not driven by communism or capitalism but driven by autocracy and democracy right and I think it's taken the the shock event the inflection point of the Ukrainian war to really really solidify that in the sense of Russia is really going to be relying on on China in many different ways. Um, I don't know if it's going to be a vassal state, but it's going to be very dependent upon China. And I, I, I think that as, as we had um, uh, your, uh, you know, fellow, fellow um, Zhou Xianglu joiners uh, talking about this, um, I'm curious for your take. Do you think that we're entering a new world order, so to speak, in sense of a bipolar one? Um, and it's the event. No, so I actually. Disagree. Oh, you don't. Oh, interesting. I actually interesting. disagree. Okay, I actually disagree, and I think the I, I think the Biden administration has done a very good job on many aspects of the uh, Ukraine war and crisis. The and on most of the ones that matter most in terms of helping Ukraine standing up to the Russians without provoking an even wider war. They've avoided a lot of dumb mistakes and done a lot of smart things. But I think their framing has been wrong. Not because I, I think we are still in some kind of multipolarity. In fact, we're going to see this even more so. So you said 2008 showed multi or you know, was the end of the unipolar moment and showed the uh, emergence of multipolarity. I think it was the biggest moment of, of cracks beginning to right. appear, if that makes sense. That's what I mean. I, I think this continues that rather than reverses that. And what I mean is if you look at this new Cold War, quote unquote, that's emerging, that Russia, the newly divided Europe that's emerging, it it's unlike the first one in large part because there are major economic power centers in the world, <coughs> China, India, much of the Middle East, Brazil, that is sitting this one out. And is not actually involved and are going to not just give Russia at least some kind of alternate, 
you know, space in which they can operate and maneuver, but that shows that multipolarity is here to stay. The United States can't command. What Russia has done is make everybody want to, in Europe at least, want to uh, join the Americans to fight off the Russians, but it's not a reflection of American power so much as Russian threat. Uh, and other countries not near Russia have not been motivated to jump into the fray. They've sat it out and watched. Moreover, ideologically, I don't buy it. Yes, it's true that Russia is authoritarian. Yes, it's true that Ukraine is uh, more democratic. And yes, it's true that Russia is being evil and nasty and the Ukrainians are the good guys in this fight. All that is true. However, if you zoom out, as you were saying, it looks much different globally and you can't have a real frame on that. So talking about, for example, India, the world's largest democracy, uh, is is if anything sort of, you know, completely on the sidelines of this. Israel, a supposed democracy, uh, you know, close U.S. ally playing a decided double game. Uh, Who are we relying on to help us out with energy to make up for the sanctioning of Russia? We're going to such noted, wonderful liberal democracies as Saudi Arabia and Venezuela. So I don't see this as being a new fight between autocracy and democracy. I don't see this as being just about rights. I see this as being largely about aggression, traditional cross-border military aggression by a strategically important power in a delicate area. It's not even just aggression, because, you know, if you think about what Ethiopia has done, nobody pays attention no, I agree. Um, when uh, there's aggression in, 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 it's in a non-strategic region. What's happened here is that a big, nasty nuclear power has acted so aggressively and recklessly that it scared the countries in its immediate environ to resist it. I don't think it's anything more than that. And I don't think that it ushers in any kind of new era to the world. I th- and I don't think it divides the world in anything resembling a bipolar way. Okay, so Gideon, I appreciate your your points um, greatly. I, I think that the United States remains thoroughly the hyperpower. Um, we do have a growing set of um, what I think the economists term middle, meddling middle powers, the Turkish in Ethiopia, the UAE on the Security Council and in parts of the Horn of Africa, um, the, the general GCC, as we had a discussion with Randa Slim of the Middle East Institute, was t- covering this as well. But, you know, you've also got these these other growing sort of superpowers that are still doing their their thing. Uh, in their respective theatres of war. So, no, I don't think that there's ever one moment where it's only, we're in a bipolar from a multipolar. That's, that is certainly not, it's not a, it's not like it, there's a sudden, but I do think that there could be sudden shock events that make uh, the trajectory of the world order begin to take a different path, so to speak. And for me, I, I, what, what's, what, what, what everyone's mind questions is about Taiwan, for example, or um, all sorts of different things relating to sort of global stability. It shows you to the, the Western centrism of this and, and how we perceive things. And what I'm for India, just for your example, is, um, you know, India remains strategically autonomous. It always will. Um, at least for a while, but it's getting incredibly close, uh, more and closer to the, to the, to the Western side because of the, the local geopolitical issues it has with the Chinese over, uh, Tibet and, and the Himalayan regions. So, you know, I, I, I hear what you're saying quite a lot, but do you not think that this is such a dramatic event that it will have some degree of s- systemic change at least? Or am I just over hyperboling everything? I don't see it. I don't see it as being systemic change. I see it as arresting 
the slide of American decline mm-hmm. um, and putting paid to the notion that a resurgent imperial Russia is any kind of wave of the future or significant uh, uh, opponent to be deeply worried about outside its region. But the larger trends, either ideologically or strategically of global politics, I think won't be as affected by this because they will be affected much more by what happens, first of all, most importantly with China, in terms of whether it can continue to grow, whether it will continue to be able to sort of amass power and if it chooses to deploy that power, and whether the United States in particular, but the West more generally, will be able to get its act together and uh, reverse the democratic slippage and and general pathetic slough of despond that the West has found itself in. And so if this might help that because it'll be a victory, it'll be a, uh, a something that, you know, shows the, the upside of, you know, the U.S. and European and Western alliance and, and the opponents of it looking bad. But the broader trends will be determined as they always are, in, or at least often are, not by a test of arms in a peripheral theater, but rather by the performance of the domestic systems of the great powers over time in delivering goods and results and, and outcomes to the people in the world. And so if the Chinese can continue to grow and flex then, and, and continue to remain authoritarian, uh, they will continue to be a major, major player in the world shaping the future of the 21st century. And if the United States and the Anglosphere more generally and Western Europe can't arrest the democratic decline that it has been experiencing and can't rejuvenate uh, their own innovative resources, then we'll continue to decline. But this is this strikes me as more of a last gasp of Russian imperialism and uh, a sort of revanchism of a defeated power that didn't quite accept its defeat and had eyes too big for its uh, stomach, uh, rather than a fundamental change that will affect the balance of power in the 21st century. Thank you for indulging me. Um, I think it's something that uh, quite a few people are um, uh, curious about, you know, this this sort of world order sort of thing. And, and for those of us who aren't perhaps um, as geopolitically wonky or wonks as, as myself or, or uh, intellectual as yourself about this matter, I think it's a very interesting area to explore. So I appreciate you uh, indulging me in that. But all right, now we're going to switch over to the, the most exciting part, which is some of the audience Q&A. I want to go to Raphael, who I think has an interesting and slightly off the beaten path, so to speak, um, uh, question. Raphael. Yeah, thank you so much, Piotr. Hi, Gideon. Thanks so much again for uh, for joining us once again in the room. This is a bit of a curveball, as Piotr mentioned, but I am curious to hear your thoughts on Russia's role in Latin America, which had frankly gone largely under the uh, radar in foreign policy circles and in Washington at large until Russia decided to invade Ukraine. You would mentioned Venezuela, and as a Venezuelan myself, I've been monitoring Putin's military relationship with the Maduro regime in Venezuela for some time now, and of course with Hugo Chavez before him. But really, Russia's influence goes beyond Venezuela, as you know. We've seen a lot of 
a lot of countries divide themselves with respect to their response to Russia's invasion of Ukraine. And not a single country in the region has actually joined the West and its allies in sanctioning Russia. And RT, uh, Russia Today, has also has a tremendous foothold in the region as a form of soft power, so to speak. So I'm curious to hear what your thoughts are on Russia's relationship with Latin America, which I think is going to be very, very important now as we draw closer to the Summit of the Americas, which is going to be hosted next month in the United States, which is a summit that Brazil and Mexico are both now looking to possibly boycott. So it's a great question. I think that I'm not as worried about Russian influence in Latin America as some others are for a couple of reasons. One is that I just don't see Russia as a big forward-looking global threat. It has not that much ideological appeal or not that much strategic capacity except outside of its uh, you know particular region and resource areas and I'm much I would be more worried long term about China's role in Latin America in Africa and elsewhere because it's a power on the rise. Russia may be bouncing off its bottom in the 90s, but it doesn't have, it's a dead cat bounce, as they say in the markets, and it doesn't really have the ability to rise uh, dramatically. And therefore, its alliances or connections are really only a factor in somewhat smaller powers of less than dramatic strategic significance. And the question there becomes, how do you deal with that? And I guess I would say that my own feeling on this is that the history of U.S. involvement in Latin America has not, militarily, has not been all that great. And when we have tried to play a symmetrical game uh, and a military game, in my years, it has been uh, not successful, particularly if you think of the Contras, if you think of what was happening in El Salvador. These things have been vicious internal military struggles. I personally think that U.S. relations with Latin America would do much better if we adopted models like, let's say, Plan Colombia, which in which sort of we provided help and aid and direction in a sort of multifaceted way to solve problems rather than just simply be the kind of strategic tit for tat that we used to do in Central America in uh, the 80s. And, you know, Venezuela is a difficult situation because, again, it presents this one of these things that I was just talking about with Russia itself, but in a smaller scale, which is we really don't know how to make Venezuela uh, the kind of country we would like it to be or help it evolve in the direction we would like. And we are all the United States can do. I think, or rather most of what it can do is provide a frame and a strategic envelope in which countries have the opportunity to develop and trade and peacefully evolve. But countries that don't necessarily take that opportunity or don't want to do that, we don't really have good models for figuring out how to, in effect, bring them over onto our side, help them develop and and do much better. And so I I would not, I guess what I would say about Russian influence in Latin America is, however malign it may be, uh, it's probably not something that the United States should take as a first order driver of its policy. 
as opposed to being something that will ultimately be countered if good U.S. policies toward the region can provide an attractive pole that will lead countries with enlightened self-interest to join with us. One of the things we have seen in this war is that it's much easier to play defense and it's much easier to shine as the opposite side of an aggressive asshole than it is to be the aggressive asshole yourself or to proclaim that you have the answers for everything. And so counterpunching and providing a, you know, being a good neighbor, uh, going back to Roosevelt's, you know, good neighbor policy is probably the best way we can counter Russian influence in Latin America in the same way we could counter Chinese influence in Africa, not so much seeing it as, oh, yet another example of strategic competition and we have to fight off the opposing influence, but rather saying, hey, how can we actually be something of a good neighbor? How can we live up to the being the kind of hegemon or the kind of dominant power that other countries want to ally with because doing so helps development? Thank you, Raphael. Um, all right. Next up, I think we will move over to Royfield, who has an interesting question for us. Hi, thanks for that, Piotr. Hi, uh, Gideon. Uh, fascinating listening to you. I, I really appreciated the analogy which you gave about escalation before. It's a case of um, playing playing with pennies and trying to get them as close to the edge as possible uh, without them um, f- falling over. And with that in mind, and you really painted a really graphic picture of how red lines can actually move and how uh, the West and Russia have, be, have, have uh, gent- gently moved and choreographed uh, actions which could be as escalationary. Um, at the start of the conflict, uh, Poland wanted to give fighter jets to its MiG fighters to Ukraine. And that was seen very much as an escalation. The British government in the last week has basically said, we are up for this and we will actually backfill any country which gives MiG fighters to, 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 the, to Ukraine. Considering the way you so expertly painted a picture of this being a war which cannot go nuclear, and you've written an article to that to that degree. What other steps, using conventional means, can there actually be uh, bef- before there is a hard stop? Very good question. I would say I, the military balance in the conflict has been a fascinating source of interest to watch because we've, we're seeing a bunch of different things and trying to respond in real time. The pathetic state of the Russian Air Force in terms of its being unable to achieve clear air superiority over the battlefield has been very interesting and surprising. The Ukrainian ability to punch above its weight in the air field has meant that the Russian advances have had to proceed without the kind of air cover they expected, for example, and uh, their their columns are being attacked by, you know, drones, uh, and that even the bombing raids have featured sort of Russian planes coming in, dropping their bombs and shooting right out so that they avoid getting, you know, targeted themselves because they've lost a lot already. I don't necessarily see 
air support now as the chief thing that is needed. And it's and since I agree with, you know, since I agree with people who felt that the planes might have been uh, somewhat potentially escalatory, I think that what you're seeing now in terms of the aid that has been being given on the ground with the things like the artillery, the howitzers, the training, uh, the intelligence support, I think that seems to be doing enough to actually help. And, uh, you know, I, I would be uh, a little bit worried. I, Look, there are people much closer to the specific military operations uh, than I am and who are aware of what's going on specifically on the ground and what is needed. I think from my reading of what I've seen in the press and in the commentary, the last few weeks have sent Ukraine or set in motion to send Ukraine a whole lot of very serious weaponry that will actually be putting a lot of pressure on the Russians on the ground in the next few weeks. And rather than continue to pile on and add even more, I would want to sort of see what's happening, you know, over the next couple of weeks. I I don't, you know, I mean, again, you want to, it's a delicate situation because you don't want, people don't want to talk about this. You don't want to empower Ukraine so much that you end up having a sort of moral hazard problem because you don't want to piss off the bear unnecessarily. And I even, I, I, I know people will get upset with that, but if you look at what happened in Georgia, for example, or if you look at what's happened, we were talking about Israel, this happens with Israel too, it happened with Taiwan and other areas. There's a tendency if you protect a small, weak country next to a big, strong one, for the small, weak country to fall prey to delusions of its own grandeur and get above itself and have aspirations that they can't really match. And that was slapped down in Georgia by by Russia. And the Americans didn't come to help the the Georgians and, and the Georgians shouldn't have provoked the Russians. The Taiwanese uh, as in the 90s sort of, you know, started to move a little bit toward declaration of independence and was told, no, you, 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 you can't and shouldn't do that. And we would not want to have the Taiwanese declare independence because that might piss off the Chinese. The Israelis have clearly used their support from the West and from America in particular to, in effect, be more obstreperous and not deal with some of their local problems uh, with the Palestinians uh, in ways that they that they might have. Uh, had they been a little uh, more concerned for it, I would have put more pressure, frankly, on the Israelis uh, than American governments have. And in this situation, how even though the Ukrainians have been valiant, even though they're good guys, even though even though they're fighting our enemies, I would be real careful. My 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 analysis of international relations tells me that small powers can get big powers in trouble and that the way that great powers get into conflict is often over battles involving small powers. All you have to do is look at uh, Thucydides and see the role played by Corinth and Corsaira, and that's how you get the Peloponnesian War going. So in the back of my mind, as well as things are going, I don't want to have the Ukrainians get so strong and dangerous and feel unthreatened that they do something that would make it harder to resolve the situation. And so the question, and this goes back to what we were talking about in the very beginning, 
which is what's going to happen in the next few weeks if there is an opening to potentially stop the war. And we're not going to tell the Ukrainians what to do. We This is no longer, you know, the old days, nor are we just going to leave it to them. There's going to be a sort of very careful behind the scenes uh, set of negotiations in which Ukraine and its backers confronting Russia will need to find a way to settle for something resembling half a loaf in, in order to move to a better situation afterwards. But that's going to be a complicated dance. And I don't necessarily see the big lacunae now militarily that need to be filled. Um, and I do still worry about certain kinds of potential escalation or obstreperousness. Thanks, Gideon. Um, and thank you for your great question, Royfield. It's, yeah, I think, you know, in light of what, when we first thought about bringing you back on, Gideon, it was, you know, about May 9th, we thought would be a a suitable moment because we thought a lot would come from May 9th and and, and surprisingly not much actually did. Um, so I, I think it's it's going to be interesting to see what the next few weeks entail. And that may well mean we just have to bring you on a third time, <laughs> if that's of interest to you, of course. But uh, it certainly would be for me and I think many of the uh, um, uh, great listeners and uh, and contributors we've had tonight. Happy um, to do it. And I'm delighted that I didn't uh, make so many different mistaken predictions last time that I had to be called to account. I'm perfectly happy to answer for any of the provisional. Ju- I've been wrong a lot. Everybody's been wrong a lot. And again, as I said, the interesting thing with the predictions is not just whether you got them right. Right, but why they came out wrong and what you can learn from it and how you update your analysis. We all should be doing kind of Bayesian updating of our uh, knowledge of the uh, of, of the situation. And I look forward to coming back in a month and having to defend uh, 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 what I said you, before but, and commenting in the future. You jumped ship. We do have one more one more question for you, if that's all right. Um, sure. Thank you very much. But um, I promised Aaron that he would uh, he would have the last question. So we're going to go over to Aaron Berger um, to to hear his question, which I think is also a, an equally entertaining one. So Aaron, all yours. Thank you. I appreciate that. And uh, uh, Dr. Rose, thank you for joining us again here. I'll say this. I was really surprised at uh, you, you said uh, recklessness when referencing uh, Putin's move to invade Ukraine earlier, um, especially juxtaposed with uh, the more hybrid war strategy that resulted in uh, the annexation of Crimea and the breakaway regions of Luhansk and Donetsk back in you know 2014-2015, all of which happened with very little cost to Russia, uh, uh, very different from where we're at right now. I feel like this, uh, uh, that sort of difference that I've pointed out uh, right now uh, hasn't gone unnoticed uh, in the annals of power around the world. So uh, uh, would you forecast even more hybrid war strategy deployments in the near future? And if so, what are some of the arenas that you're keeping an eye on? Uh, Thank you very much for your time. So this is a great question because Russia clearly drew certain kinds of lessons from its previous uh, nibbles and bites around it. And it escalated. What Russia seems to have learned was, gee, we can take these things and no one's going to stop us. And we can even take more and more aggressively uh, than we have been doing. It would have been much smarter 
for Russia to do a hybrid warfare, send in some little green men, uh, make a fait accompli in parts of the East, and then sort of stop and force the West to respond. If they could have taken a little bit more of Ukraine, and the uh, you wouldn't have provoked this massive uh, counterbalancing effort. And uh, so clearly this kind of direct cross-border invasion in force that pisses everybody off, makes everybody feel threatened and doesn't even succeed is not a good strategy. So for if you're China looking at Taiwan, this is not what you want to do. But it's not entirely clear what you should do. Clearly something that is more deniable and less threatening. But it's hard to see where that happens next. For example, people have Baltics. I don't think frankly, the Baltics have anything to worry about now, because the last thing uh, Russia uh, wants is to get into new conflicts with NATO uh, and get anywhere near that. Um, So I don't think hybrid uh, forces, you know, little green men in Estonia or something like that is where you're going to see things. Where it might work elsewhere? I don't know. I think you're going to try and see The lessons others are going to learn from this is a fascinating question, and it will depend in part how things play out. If I were China, I would. The one thing we know about how China is looking at this, or at least that I've heard and drawing lessons, is they were surprised by the extent to which the U.S. could mobilize such strong uh, sanctions so quickly and thoroughly and realize that they are more vulnerable to the kind of economic coercion that uh, we brought to bear than they had thought. And so one thing the Chinese are doing is trying to protect themselves in the future from the sorts of sanctions that Russia has fallen prey to. I would imagine they have to think this is not a good direct attack strategy for what we want with Taiwan. I don't think they were eager to attack Taiwan, but they clearly uh, would be even less eager to and maybe try to use some kind of other method of economic coercion or gradual estranglement or whatever. But I but I think that, you know, the hybrid warfare, the problem is it can't get you the re- the major returns that a full scale attack could. Hybrid warfare wouldn't have gotten you all of Ukraine. So the big picture here is if you are a country understand the limits of what you actually can achieve and aspire to and stay within them. The biggest takeaway from all of this is that Russia has failed to accept the fundamental loss of status in the world that came with the end of the Cold War. It still wants to punch above its weight. It still wants to be a giant, great imperial power, but it doesn't have the capacity to actually do that. And so the greatest sort of lesson for everybody, United States included, is to beware of what uh, was called the Lippman Gap by Walter Lippman, uh, uh, which about U.S. foreign policy back in the day in the 40s, uh, which was you have commitments and you have resources and you want to make sure that you have enough resources to fulfill your commitments and aspirations. And if you don't, you either have to develop more resources or lower your commitments because you want to bring them into balance. Russia has aspirations that it can't actually fulfill. And the best answer to that is not a strategy of warfare that'll get around that fact, 
but to bring your aspirations and your capabilities into balance because that's the ultimate way to be strategically sane, stable, and successful. Great. Thank you very much for that. Really, really um, enlightening final question, Aaron. Uh, great to have your contributions as always. Uh, and thank you, Gideon. Really appreciate it. Uh, I'm just going to bounce over to Tao, who, as you know, co-host for this evening, uh, for this episode, has been uh, of, of great um, value as well. Uh, Tao, love to hear any any takeaways. Your, you know, what you what you really s- stood out for you in this uh, in this discussion. Sure. And look, it's it's not a surprise. And you know, Gideon, I have you to thank for first uh, giving me this uh, this framework to think about. Which is, look, we in the West are used to, um, I would call them Manichaean outcomes or Manichaean world. Uh, which is clean outcomes. You know, the the Knights of Gondor defeat the Orcs of Mordor. There's a there's a clean outcome to this sort of stuff. And what I've learned from this, and what I've learned from watching this, is that 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 is the exception rather than the rule. The rule is actually these complex outcomes that are uh, unsatisfying, that leave major uh, topics unresolved, uh, sometimes for years, sometimes for decades. But if that uh, state that sort of sort of unfinished outcome succeeds in preserving the peace and and you know uh, creating a stable order then that is a good outcome for for a lot of people who are involved in these well well said <laughs> um and gideon um if you had any final thoughts any final takeaways um i know this recent piece that we touched upon during the discussion and that will be included within the podcast show notes uh, as well but if you've got any any final real points you want to underline for our listeners um, please go ahead um thanks i guess what i would just say is it is possible to approach foreign policy and strategic affairs with disciplined intelligence and rigorous analysis but it's difficult to do so because the subjects raise very strong emotions and we are often at the prey of our own emotions and cognitive biases, even if we don't necessarily realize it. There's something called the fundamental attribution error in which cognitive psychologists tell us that we tend, everybody tends to think of their opponent as being driven by volition. Ah, they're an evil person who is wanting to do horrible things. Whereas we see ourselves as the victims of constraint. We have no choice but to do X or Y or Z. In fact, there are always choices. And these choices have to be made in very difficult situations in which, as Tao said, there are no good answers. And the way to think about strategic affairs is to figure out how you can use intelligence to develop policies that are less bad than other policies. Uh, when I tell my, when I teach this stuff, I start off with what I call Blues's first law of foreign policy, which is that all policies suck. But for policymakers, is to figure out which is the least sucky policy in any situation uh, and try to actually uh, implement it. And if you have that attitude rather than thinking of foreign policy as an arena of shining moral conflict or great moral opportunity, if you think of it as trying to, you know, figure out the least sucky policy that enables you to sort of create a framework in which, you know, domestic life can go on and international economic life can go on, then you'll be uh, well, uh, well situated to dealing with the world as it is. Thank you very much. And, you know, whenever I'm trying to curate and come up with a, a snappy and also engaging title 
Um, you know, I, I think what is a sucky policy may well just be the title of this um, of this discussion. Of course not, but it's, uh, suck. some suck more than others. <laughs> Indeed. Um, so um, sucky policy, suck, policies suck. That may well be uh, one of the uh, the running themes that we 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 can we continue. But thank you very much for that uh, that great final takeaway, um, and thank you very much for listening. Um, I want to pay particular appreciation to the patrons who make this podcast possible uh, and the executive pro- uh, producers as well particularly uh, one of them being joe christine um and and thank all of you for listening if you did find this valuable then stay listening until the end and you can find out how to support the podcast further share it on um social media and please share it with your friends but that's it from me uh, this is piotr uh, thank you very much for tuning in and see you in the next episode of the global gambit you were listening to the global gambit we hope you enjoyed this episode If you did, subscribe and leave us a review. We would especially appreciate it if you left a comment on why you valued this episode and what you took away from it. Doing so helps us to be discovered by new listeners who would really enjoy our content. Want to support us further? Do so by becoming a Patreon at patreon.com forward slash the global gambit, where you can get additional perks and even be featured in upcoming episodes. We actively invite you to follow and engage with us on social media at The Global Gambit. Got any feedback or suggestions, such as potential guests? Get in touch at theglobalgambit at gmail.com. Lastly, don't be shy. Download the Clubhouse app, listen in in real time, and even participate with questions or comments to the guests and host Piotr. But until next time, this is The Global Gambit.